You're at the Over or Under Show. I'm your host, Ed Henderson. And man, it's a crazy world we live in. It has no shortages of rabbit holes. I'm not scared of rabbit holes. If you're not scared of rabbit holes, this show is for you. Let's see if we can jump in one and make our way back to the top. Welcome to Over Under. I'm your host, Ed Henderson. This is my second podcast. So if you are joining me again and you're not my mother, my wife, one of my children or anybody else that I might have begged to listen to my podcast, man, I'm really excited that you're here. I'm going to take it that you found some uh, interest or you found some information that was worth tuning in one more time. So again, thank you. Now, I think I told you alcohol was mentioned over 200 times, it is, and that I would go over some more of the words, but on further review, it just every time I go over it, it's just it's so incredibly redundant. Now, I love Scripture. I, I encourage you to read the Word, but I think we established, or I hope I did, in the first podcast that alcohol is not grape juice. There is no such—I was getting ready to say there's no such thing as a two-wine theory, but you can best believe there is a two-wine theory, but it is so incredibly false— If you are hearing this preached from the pulpit, I promise you it is not of God. It is not of Scripture. It is of that pastor. It is a teaching of man. And I will just pull short of the line of saying that it is absolute blasphemy. If that stepped on some toes or hurt any feelings, I wish I could say that I was was sorry, but I'm not. I'm not ashamed of my Savior. I'm not ashamed of my faith. He's, if anybody has any reason to be ashamed, it would be my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ being ashamed of me. But I absolutely have no shame when it comes to the Savior Jesus Christ. Concerning teetotalism, let, let me share some writings from Mere Christianity. Of course, the author being C.S. Lewis. A lot of teetotalers like C.S. Lewis. I've heard them read his Quotations from Mere Christianity. My preacher quoted him this past Sunday. But let's see what he says about temperance. C.S. Lewis. Temperance is, unfortunately, one of those words that has changed its meaning. It now usually means teetotalism. But in the days when the second cardinal virtue was Christian temperance, it meant nothing of the sort. Temperance referred not specifically to drink, but to all pleasures, and it meant not abstaining, but going the right length and no further. It's a mistake to think that Christians ought all to be teetotalers. Mahabbatism, I think he meant Islam, not Christianity, is teetotal religion. So if you're into being a teetotaler at that level, you might want to consider Islam. He goes on to say, of course, it may be the duty of a particular Christian or of any Christian at a particular time to abstain from strong drink, either because he is the sort of man who cannot drink at all without drinking too much, or because he is with people who are inclined to drunkenness and must not encourage them by drinking himself. But the whole point is that he is abstaining for a good reason, from something which he does not condemn and which he likes to see other people enjoying. One of the marks of a certain type of bad man is that he cannot give up a thing himself without wanting everyone else to give it up. That is not the Christian way. An individual Christian may see fit to give up all sorts of things for special reasons, marriage or meat or beer or the cinema. But the moment he starts saying that things are bad in themselves or looking down his nose at other people who do use them, he has taken the wrong turning. 
One great piece of mischief has been done by the modern restriction of the word temperance to the question of drink. It helps people to forget that you can be just as intemperate about lots of other things. A man who makes his golf or his motorbicycle the center of his life or a woman who devotes all her thoughts to clothes or bridge or her dog is being just as intemperate as someone who gets drunk every evening. Of course, it does not show on the outside so easily. Bridge mania or golf mania do not make you fall down in the middle of the road, but God is not deceived by externals. From the book Mere Christianity, which is even often quoted, believe this or not, in many Southern Baptist churches. I've heard it in many a pulpit. They are big fans of C.S. Lewis. I did not hear them share that portion of mere Christianity that I just shared with you. But he's very much in agreement with Martin Luther, who puts it uh, in just a couple of sentences, what he said in Martin Luther's way. Do not suppose that abuses are eliminated by destroying the object which is abused Men can go wrong with wine and women. Shall we then prohibit and abolish women? End quote. Martin Luther. So if you have found yourself the lone voice in the wilderness on this topic of Christian and alcohol, I want to assure you, you're in very good company. You are not by yourself. Uh, you're definitely in my camp. And if that isn't impressive to you, you are in the camp of Martin Luther, C.S. Lewis, and incredibly the Lord Jesus Christ. So so take great comfort in that and 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 don't give up. I mean there's mu- many more important things in scripture than alcohol. You can't you can't major in the minors, but people have made a mountain out of a molehill. So we in the third podcast cuz I can already tell cuz we're coming up on 6 minutes, past 6 minutes. I'm not going to be able to get to what I wanted to. I told you early on that I was very interested in where did this false teaching of the Christian and alcohol start? You've had some pastors with incredible credentials who have taught this crap. That's what it is. It is absolute crap. And so it has done much damage. It ushered in the era of prohibition. Crime just went out the roof. Alcoholism increased. It produced the exact opposite of these zealots we're hoping to achieve. One thing I hope you will not take from this podcast is that I'm encouraging you to drink alcohol. If you are an alcoholic, you're having problems with it, I would beg you to refrain from it to seek help for it. But I do that in the same vein of if golf is overtaking your life, as C.S. Lewis pointed out, if you're spending more time in social media than you are scripture, you're on Facebook more than you're spending time with your children, you've got a problem. That is not a temperate use of those objects as scripture would teach you to do. Anything that is replacing God and is becoming an idol in your life you should abstain from that. And so I am strongly encouraging that if that is your issue with alcohol, you should refrain. So once once again, I'll, I'll confess to you, as I did in the first podcast, I've never been confused about alcohol and the Christian. Scripture teaches that you can use it, you can abuse it. it it's very straightforward. Everything you need to know about the Christian and alcohol will be found in Scripture itself. If for some reason you're still struggling with it, I will recommend 
one outside source. It is a book entitled God Gave Wine. It is written by a gentleman, Kenneth L. Gentry. I believe he is a uh, Presbyterian pastor. And it is printed by Oak Down Publishers. That's O-A-K-D-O-W-M Publishers. That's one word. Oak Down is one word. And uh, it's written very well. It's a very good read. It's not a very big book, but he covers this topic incredibly thoroughly. As I stated earlier, I sure hope that you got some value out of that first podcast. I am going to get around to this topic of the two wine theory, where it originated, or at least where I believe. I think I've done a a pretty good job of trying to figure out exactly and pinpointing uh, exactly where it came from. Obviously, it happened during the uh, temperance movement. Organizations such as the uh, British Temperance Movement, the American Temperance Society, they are ultimately responsible for this false teaching. But I will show you how they went about engineering, and it was quite a feat. They spent a considerable amount of money doing it, but that's going to be for the third podcast. I want that entire time committed to just that, the two wine theory, that's probably what I will title that third podcast. But I want to talk about the wedding of Cana. I was watching The Chosen, which is a portrayal of Jesus Christ uh, in his ministry here on earth, him selecting his disciples and uh, walking amongst the people, the miracles that were performed. And I saw The Wedding of Cana. It was was a very accurate portrayal of uh, the wedding And the significance of the wedding of Cana, I don't know that I have fully appreciated. I've I've heard it since I was a child. It caused me to look a little bit deeper. So I I want us to look a little bit more in depth at the wedding of Cana. But before we go back to John 2, I want to show you what an incredible calling card that Jesus Christ left at that first miraculous miracle. But we're going to start in Isaiah 25. We're going to start reading at verse 6, and this is what it says. And in this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all people a feast of choice pieces, a feast of wines on the lees, of fat things full of marrow, of well-refined wines on the lees. And he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all the people and the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all the faces, the rebuke of his people, he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. Now, a lot of people have pointed to this as being the era of the messianic time that Jesus Christ would actually be on the earth, that he would return. It is described as a banquet, a feast of wines on the lees, which shows that it was aged longer for color, for strength, for taste, of fat things full of marrow. This is going to be the choice pieces of meat, of well-refined wines on the lees. It says it again, it's stressing wine, and it's going to be abundant. He will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all the people. It is sin that covers all the people, and the veil that is spread over all the nations. That's going to be me and you. We're going to be included in this. He will swallow up death forever. With his crucifixion, we are given salvation. It's in his blood that we're made holy and gives us the way to reunite with our Christ, Lord, Savior, our God, the rebuke of his people. 
he will take away from all the earth all the shame all the all the sin all the bad things that have happened to you will be taken away and it ends with for the lord has spoken so the wedding of cana it's a banquet much as was described in isaiah and it starts off saying on the third day there was a wedding two very significant things going on right there on the third day do a google search and punch up third day in the scripture and find out how many times it's mentioned i don't even know all of them but i will tell you this that the uh, water and the land was separated on the third day god descended on mount sinai after the third day after the children of israel arrived there pharisees were asking for a sign from jesus he said your sign will be the sign of jonah jonah was in the belly of the fish for uh, three days and jesus rose on the third day so here we find there's a wedding on the third day the wedding is significant in the fact of jesus describes his relationship to the church, to his disciples, as a wedding, like the bride and the groom. That's incredibly significant. The next thing we see is in this wedding, they run out of wine. That is the crisis. We, we have no wine. Now, what's significant about that? The shame that would ensue on this family afterwards, and it wouldn't just be two weeks of people talking crap about you it would probably be a lifetime of shame it was a very big thing for two families to come together and the wedding was incredibly significant as far as the, how that couple would be viewed and even uh, more importantly the entire family would be viewed it would be incredibly shameful to have run out of wine or food uh, during this uh feast that sometimes lasted as long as seven days. So there's a crisis here. Crisis is wine, which plays an incredibly significant role in the life of the Jew and Jesus's life. And what does Jesus do? He provides it abundantly, just like in Isaiah. It just wasn't no wine in a box. It was the finest wine. I would go ahead and say it was the best wine that was ever drank on this earth. And yet Jesus provides for a need. In doing so, he covers their shame. You remember in Isaiah, it said that he would uh, remember Isaiah 25 and verse 7. He said, and he will destroy on this mountain the surface of the covering cast over all people and the veil that is spread over all the nations, referring to the sin that covers uh, these people. And so the shame of that has been removed at in the context of this wedding the shame that would have ensued from them running out of wine has been removed jesus has provided that which is missing another thing that jumps out at you is that when they ran out of wine jesus could have just as easily filled those vessels that were emptied the the vessels that carried the wine that was drank but he does not what does he fill up he fills up the six stone pots that were meant for Jewish purification. That's incredibly significant, or at least I believe it is. He fills it with the wine that he miraculously provides. What was once used and considered holy water, if you will, is now filled with the blood of Jesus Christ, used to purify yourself by taking the uh, water that was in these holy vessels or these sanctified vessels 
and you would wash, you would clean the outside of your body. Now, the blood of Jesus Christ, you are now drinking. I, I think that's what is being symbolized here. As a matter of fact, that's what we do when we partake of communion. So I don't think that's too far-fetched. And this next thing I'm about to say, I don't believe is too far-fetched either. At least I'm being honest with you. I'm not telling you this is exactly what Scripture's saying, but this is the impressions that I get, and I'm sharing them with you, that it says these are the beginning of his signs. He revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Everything that I shared with you, these people, his disciples, being brought up in the Jewish faith, they would have recognized all these signs. They'd already been walking with Jesus. Peter and Andrew, I believe, have already seen the, uh, had their boats filled with fish after fishing all throughout the night and not getting any, any fish. Jesus asked them to put their nets in one more time. I'm sure they think he's crazy. They're the fishermen, right? He's not a fisherman. And uh, they do it, and they, they, they haul in the biggest load they've ever had. But it's at this miracle that it says that his followers believed. My friend, and I'm going to go ahead and call you friend if you showed it from a second podcast. I was going to wait till you listen to at least 10 of my podcasts, but I'm going to go ahead and refer to you as friend. And I do. I'm, I'm serious. I'm very happy that you uh, join me once more. And I hope that I brought some more light on the topic of Christian and alcohol by covering uh, a little bit more in-depthly on the wedding of Cana. If you're focusing on alcohol in that story, you are missing the big picture. What, what a beautiful story of redemption, God's grace, His intervention. That would be the wrong thing to focus on. We're coming up on 20 minutes. I read somewhere that is the ideal time that a podcast should last, and I'm going to try not to run too far over. In my third podcast, I would, I would uh, ask that you join me because we're going to go look into the false teachings of the two-wine theory and the doctrine of teetotalism. If you don't believe that it is a doctrine in some churches, you haven't been out of the house too much. I'll go ahead and tell you I was raised as a Southern Baptist, and uh, it is starting to wane some, somewhat within the Southern Baptist. It's not quite taught as uh, Ten Commandments either more. It's starting to wane somewhat. But I will share, I will share some personal stories about uh, myself, alcohol, and the Southern Baptist Church. I'm still a member of a Southern Baptist Church. I do not unpack my bags uh, because you never know when you might have to pick up and leave. <laughs> Seriously, tongue-in-cheek right now, but there have been some painful uh, things that have uh, occurred with me and alcohol and the Southern Baptists. And no, I was not caught in any acts of debauchery, but simply by standing up for what Scripture says. And like I said, I make no excuses to anybody. I do not have a, sh a Savior to be ashamed of, and I will not be ashamed of Him. I will not be ashamed of his demonstrations while he was here on earth. He's a good God. We have a good, good God, a good Father who gives good gifts. So as we depart, please remember there's a lot of things that you can abuse, not just alcohol. That might be the greatest head fake of these people who push temperance because possibly by putting so much focus on a non-issue, it will divert you away from those things that are really causing a problem in your life. So the Bible does preach temperance. I know that I'm starting to use the word temperance and 
teetotalism synonymously is because the temperance movement and people who claim to be temperate have changed this word into really meeting teetotalism. So be mindful of everything that you do in your life. Make sure it's done for the glory of God. Make sure you're not abusing anything in your life to the point to where it's replacing God. So again, thank you for turning in. God bless and thank you for being with me today.